0: This is Classic Lutheran Preaching on KNNALP 95.7, Lincoln, Nebraska. This is Pastor John Schmidt with an abridged reading of Martin Luther's sermon for the fourth Sunday in Advent. This is from the John Nicholas Lenker Collection, published in 1905 and reissued by Baker Bookhouse in 1983. The scripture text is Philippians chapter 4, beginning at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I will say, rejoice. Let your forbearance be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. In nothing be anxious, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall guard your hearts and your thoughts in Christ Jesus. This is our text. The text, though short, is a suggestive and important lesson in Christian faith. It teaches how we should conduct ourselves toward God and our neighbor. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Joy is the natural fruit of faith. The apostle says elsewhere in Galatians 5, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self control. Until the heart believes in God, it is impossible for it to rejoice in him. When faith is lacking, man is filled with fear and gloom and is disposed to flee at the very mention, the mere thought of God. Indeed, the unbelieving heart is filled with enmity and hatred toward God. Conscious of his own guilt, it has no confidence in his gracious mercy. It knows God is an enemy to sin and will terribly punish the same. Since there exist in the heart these two things, a consciousness of sin and a perception of God's chastisement, the heart must ever be depressed, faint, even terrified. It must be continually apprehensive that God stands behind, ready to chastise. Solomon says in Proverbs 28, The wicked flee when no man pursueth. And Deuteronomy 28 reads, Jehovah will give thee there a trembling heart, and thy life shall hang in doubt. One may as well try to persuade water to burn as to talk to such a heart of joy in God. All words will be without effect, for the sinner feels upon his conscience the pressure of God's hand. The prophet's injunction in Psalm 32 says, Be glad in Jehovah, and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy all ye that are upright in heart. It must be the just and the righteous who are to rejoice in the Lord. This text, therefore, is written not for sinners, but for the saint. First, we must tell sinners how they can be liberated from their sins and perceive a merciful God. When they have been released from the power of an evil conscience, joy will naturally result. But how shall we be liberated from an accusing conscience and receive the assurance of God's mercy? The question has been sufficiently answered in the preceding sermons and will be again frequently satisfied later on. He who would have a quiet conscience and would be sensitive to God's mercy must not, like the apostates, depend on works, still further doing violence to the heart and increasing its hatred of God. He must place no hope whatever in works, must apprehend God in Christ, comprehend the gospel and believe its promises. But what does the gospel promise other than that Christ is given for us, that he bears our sins, that he is our bishop, mediator, and advocate before God, and that thus only through him and his work is God reconciled, are our sins forgiven, and our consciences set free and made glad. When this sort of faith in the gospel really exists in the heart, God is recognized as favorable and pleasing. The heart confidently feels his favor and grace, and only these— it fears not God's chastisement. It is secure and in good spirit because God has conferred upon it, through Christ, superabundant goodness and grace. Essentially, the fruits of such a faith are love, peace, joy, and songs of thanksgiving and praise. It will enjoy unalloyed and sincere pleasure in God as its supremely beloved and gracious Father, a Father whose attitude toward itself has been wholly paternal. And who, without any merit on its part, has richly poured out upon that heart his goodness. Such is the rejoicing, mark you, of which Paul here speaks a rejoicing where it is no sin, no fear of death or hell, but rather a glad and all powerful confidence in God and his kindness. Hence the expression, rejoice in the Lord, not rejoice in silver or gold, not in eating or drinking not in pleasure or mechanical chanting, not in strength or health, not in skill or wisdom, not in power or honor, not in friendship or favor, nay, not in good works or holiness even. For these are deceptive joys, false joys, which never stir the depths of the heart. They are never even felt. When they are present, we may well say that the individual rejoices superficially and without a heart experience. To rejoice in the Lord to trust, confide, glory, and have pride in the Lord, as, as, as in a gracious father. This is a joy which rejects all else but the Lord, including that self-righteousness whereof Jeremiah speaks in chapter 9. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he hath understanding and knoweth me. Again, Paul enjoins in 2 Corinthians 10, He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. The apostle further commands in our text to rejoice always. Thus he rebukes those who rejoice in God, who praise and thank him, only a portion of the time. These rejoice when it is well with them, when not rejoicing ceases. Concerning them, Psalm 48 teaches, they will praise God when he favors them. David does not so. He declares in Psalm 34, I will bless Jehovah at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. And David has good reason to do so, for who will harm a distressed one favorite of God? Sin harms him not, nor death, nor hell. David sings in Psalm 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And Paul queries in Romans 8, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or anguish, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? And then he goes on in verses following. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature, shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 4. Again I will say, Rejoice! The Apostle emphasizes his admonition by repeating it. It is essential that we rejoice. Paul, recognizing that we live in the midst of sin and evil, both which things depress, would fortify us with cheer. Thus rejoicing, even if we should sometimes fall into sin, our joy in God will exceed our sorrow in sin. The natural accompaniment of sin truly is fear and a burdened conscience, and we cannot always escape sin. Therefore we should let joy have rule, let Christ be greater than our sins. John says in his first letter, chapter 2, If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins. Again in 1 John 3, Because if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and knoweth all things. Verse 5, Let your forbearance, your moderation, be known unto all men. Having instructed the Philippians concerning their conduct toward God, their duty to serve him with joyful hearts, Paul proceeds briefly to teach them how to conduct themselves before men, saying, Let your moderation be known unto all men. In other words, rejoice always before God, but before men be forbearing. Direct your life so as to do and suffer everything not contrary to the commandments of God, that you may make yourselves universally agreeable. Not only refrain from offending any, but put the best possible construction upon the conduct of others. Aim to be clearly recognized as men, indifferent to circumstances, as content whether you be hit or missed, and holding to no privilege at all liable to bring you into conflict or produce discord. With the rich be rich, with the poor poor, rejoice with the joyful, weep with the mourning. Finally, be all things to all men, compelling them to confess you always agreeable, uniformly pleasant to mankind, and on a level with everyone. Such is the meaning of the little word here employed by the Apostle, which means equity, clemency, accommodation, and which we cannot better render than by moderation or forbearance. It is the virtue of adapting or accommodating oneself to another, of endorsing that other, of making all equal, Presenting a like attitude toward all men, not setting oneself up as a model and pattern, not desiring mankind to do homage to one, to conform to one's position. Observe the beautiful aptness of the words, Let your forbearance be known unto all men. You may ask, How can one become known to all men? And must we boast of our forbearance, proclaiming it to everyone? God forbid the latter. Paul does not say boast, of and proclaim your forbearance he says let it be experienced by all men that is exercise forbearance in your deeds before men not think or speak of it but show it in your conduct thus men generally see and grasp it and must have experience of it then no one can do otherwise than admit you are forbearing actual experience will defeat every desire to speak of you in any other way The mouth of the fault finder will be stopped by the fact that all men know your forbearance. Christ says in Matthew 5, Even so, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And Peter says in his first letter, chapter 2, Having your behavior seemly among the Gentiles, that wherein they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they behold glorify God in the day of visitation. It lies not in our power to make our moderation acceptable to all men, but it is enough for us to give everyone opportunity to perceive it in our lives. In these few words, Paul comprehends the Christian's entire conduct toward his neighbor. The forbearing individual treats everyone rightly in word and act, treats him as he ought, physically and spiritually, bearing with his evils and imperfections. Such conduct may be defined as simply love, peace, Patience, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness. In fact, everything included in the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. But you will say, Yes, but in that case, who would be left in the enjoyment of a morsel of bread because of the wicked people ready to abuse equality and take our all, not permitting us to live on the earth even? Note Paul's beautiful answer to your question. In the conclusion of this epistle lesson, he says, The Lord is at hand. Were there no God, you might well thus fear the wicked. But not only is there a God, he is at hand. He will neither forget nor forsake you, only be forbearing to all men and let him care for you. Leave it to him how he is to support and protect you. Has he given you Christ, the eternal treasure? How then shall he not give you the necessities of this life? With him is much more than any one can take from you. Then, too, you possess in Christ more than is represented in all this world's goods. On this subject, the psalmist says in Psalm 55, Cast thy burden upon Jehovah, and he will sustain thee. And Peter, in 1 Peter 5, Casting all your anxiety upon him, because he careth for you. And Christ, in the sixth chapter of Matthew, points us to the lilies of the field and the fowls of the air. The thought of these passages is the same as that of The Lord is at hand. Now follows, verse 6, In nothing be anxious. Take no thought for yourself, let God care for you. He whom you now acknowledge is able to provide for you. It is the heathen, unknowing he has God, who takes thought for himself. Christ says in Matthew 6, Be not therefore anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that you have need of all these things. Then let the whole world grasp and deal unrighteously. You shall have enough. You shall not die of hunger or cold, unless someone shall have deprived you of the God who cares for you. But who shall take him from you? How can you lose him except you yourself let him go? We have no reason to take thought for ourselves when we have a Father and Protector who holds in his hand all things, even them who, with all their possessions, would rob or injure us. Our duty is to rejoice ever in God and be forbearing toward all men, as becomes those assured of ample provision for body and soul, especially in that we have a gracious God. They without Him may well be concerned about themselves. It should be our anxiety not to be anxious, to rejoice in God alone and to be kind to men. On this topic, the psalmist says in Psalm 37, I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed baking bread. Again, Psalm 40 The Lord thinketh upon me. Verse 6 But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Here Paul teaches us to cast our care upon God. The meaning is Take no thought for yourselves. Should anything transpire to give you care or anxiety, And such will be the case, for many trials will befall you on earth. Make no effort to escape it, be it what it may. Have no care or anxiety. Turn to God with prayer, with supplication, entreating Him to accomplish for you all that you would seek to effect by care. And do so in thankfulness that you have a God solicitous for you, and to whom you may freely come with all your anxieties. Who does not so when misfortune befalls, but endeavors to measure it by His reason and to overrule it by his counsel, and falls into anxiety, this man plunges himself into deep wretchedness, loses his joy and peace in God and all to accomplish nothing. He but digs in the sand, sinking himself ever deeper and effects no good. Of this fact we daily have testimony in our own experience and in that of others. It may be necessary to add this, however. Let no one conclude he will be utterly careless and rest upon God making no effort, no exertion, not even resorting to prayer. Whoso adopts this course must soon fail and fall into anxiety. We must ever strive. Many care engendering things befall us for the very purpose of driving us to prayer. Not undesignedly does the Apostle contrast the two injunctions, in nothing be anxious, and in all things flee to God. Nothing in all are contrasting terms. Paul thus makes plain that many things transpire which tend to create in us anxiety but we must not let them make us over anxious we must commit ourselves to god and implore his aid for our needs now let us examine paul's words and learn how to frame our prayers and what attitude to assume he makes a fourfold division of prayer prayer supplication thanksgiving and petition by prayer we understand simply formal words or expressions As, for instance, the Lord's Prayer and the Psalms, which sometimes express more than our request. In supplication, we strengthen our prayer and make it effective by a certain form of persuasion. For instance, we may entreat one to grant a request for the sake of a father or of something dearly loved or highly prized. We entreat God by his Son, his saints, his promises, his name. Thus Solomon, in Psalm 132, Jehovah, remember for David all his afflictions. And Paul urges in Romans 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. And again in Second Corinthians 10, I entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Petitioning is stating what we have at heart, naming the desire we express in prayer and supplication. In the Lord's prayer are seven petitions besides prayer proper. Christ says in Matthew 7, Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. In thanksgiving we recount blessings received, and thus strengthen our confidence and enable ourselves to wait trustingly for what we pray. Prayer is made vigorous by petitioning, urgent by supplication, by thanksgiving, pleasing and acceptable. Strength and acceptability combine to prevail and secure the petition. This, we see, is the manner of prayer practiced by the Church and the Holy Fathers in the Old Testament always offered supplication and thanks in their prayers. The Lord's Prayer opens with a praise and thanksgiving and the acknowledgment of God as a Father. It earnestly presses toward Him through filial love and a recognition of fatherly tenderness. For supplication this prayer is unequaled, hence it is the sublimest and the noblest prayer ever uttered. Verse 7 And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall guard your hearts and your thoughts in Christ Jesus. Note the beautiful logic and order of Paul's teaching. The Christian is first to rejoice in God through faith and then show forbearance or kindness to men. Should he ask, How can I? Paul answers, The Lord is at hand. But how if I be persecuted and robbed? Paul's reply is, In nothing. Be anxious. Pray to God. Let him care. But meanwhile I shall become weary and desolate. Not so. The peace of God shall keep you. Let us now consider the last thought. By the phrase, the peace of God, we must understand not that calm and satisfied peace wherein God himself dwells, but the peace and contentment he produces in our hearts. It is called the peace of God in the same sense that the message of God which we hear and believe and speak is styled the word of God. This peace is the gift of God and is called the peace of God because, having it, we are at peace with him even if we are displeased with men. This peace of God is beyond the power of mind and reason to comprehend. Understand, however, it is not beyond man's power to experience, to be sensible of it. Peace with God must be felt in the heart and conscience. How else could our hearts and minds be preserved through Christ Jesus? to illustrate the difference between the peace of God and the peace comprehensible by reason. They who know nothing of fleeing to God in prayer when overtaken by tribulation and adversity and when filled with care and anxiety proceed to seek that peace alone which reason apprehends and which reason can secure. But reason apprehends no peace apart from a removal of the evil. Such a peace does not transcend the comprehension of reason It is compatible with reason. They who pray not, rage and strive under the guidance of reason until they obtain a certain peace by fraudulent or forcible removal of the evil, just as the wounded seeks to be healed. But they who rejoice in God find their peace in him and are contented. They calmly endure tribulation, not desiring what reason dictates as peace, removal of the evil, Standing firm, they await the inner strength wrought by faith. It is not theirs to inquire whether the evil will be short or long in duration, whether temporal or eternal. They give themselves no concern on this point, but ever leave it to God's regulation. They are not anxious to know when, how, where, or by whom termination of the evil is to come. In return, God affords them grace and removes their evils, bestowing blessings upon their expectations or even desires. This, Mark you, is the peace of the cross, the peace of God, peace of conscience, Christian peace, which gives us even external calm, which makes us satisfied with all men and unwilling to disturb any. Reason cannot understand how there can be pleasure in crosses and peace in disquietude. It cannot find these. Such peace is the work of God, and none can understand it until it has been experienced. Relative to this topic, it is said in the epistle for the second Sunday in Advent, the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. What the apostle there terms peace in believing, he here calls peace of God. In this verse, Paul implies that for him who rejoices in God and exercises forbearance in his life, The devil will raise up a cross calculated forcibly to turn his heart from that way. The Christian should therefore be well fortified, placing his peace beyond the devil's reach, in God. Let him not be anxious to rid himself of what the devil has forced upon him. Let him suffer Satan's wantonness until God's coming shall exterminate it. Thus will the Christian's heart, mind, and affection be guarded and preserved in peace. His patience could not long endure did not his heart exist above its conditions in a higher peace were it not satisfied that it has peace with God. Heart and mind here must not be supposed to mean human will and understanding. We are to take Paul's explanation. Heart and mind in Christ Jesus. In other words, the will and understanding resultant in Christ, from Christ and under Christ. Faith and love are meant... Faith and love in all their operations, in all their inclinations toward God and men. The reference is simply to a disposition to trust and love God sincerely and a willingness of heart and mind to serve God and man to the utmost. The devil seeks to prevent this state by terror, by revealing death and by every sort of misfortune, and by setting up human devices to induce the heart to seek comfort and help in its own counsels and in man. Thus led astray, The heart falls from trust in God to a dependence upon itself. Briefly, this text is a lesson in Christian living and the attitude of the Christian toward God and man. It teaches us to let God be everything to us and to treat all men alike. To conduct ourselves toward men as does God toward us, receiving from him and giving to them. It may be summed up in the words, faith and love. Amen. This has been a presentation of classical Lutheran preaching from the Sermons of Martin Luther, the John Nicholas Linker Collection of 1905, and reprinted by Baker Bookhouse in 1983.